HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Heritage Radio Network. For today's Cutting the Curd, I am interviewing Emily Nunn, author of The Comfort Food Diaries. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm happy to be on a cheat show. Oh, great, great. So I am totally curious, how did the idea for this begin? It's, it's a very serious memoir with recipes, just for our listeners who haven't already read the book. How did it begin? You know, I haven't talked about the book in a while, and I was thinking um, that was probably going to be one of your questions. And I I describe in the book that that somebody on Facebook gave me the idea, and I forgot about it. And this is, I'm not even on Facebook anymore, but after um, I had a suicide in my family, and Mm a breakup immediately after, and just my whole life imploded. And, of course, I back then, when people still went on Facebook and, you know, divulged family secrets and that sort of thing, I went on and just dumped all of my emotions, and it was just horrible. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and then I drank a bottle of wine, and I thought, 
oh my God, people are going to, I'm going to be unfriended by everybody. But instead, there was all this incredible warmth and advice that, you know, I didn't take. But um, mm-hmm. one of the people said, you know, you should, I didn't have a home. I was going to be, I had no money. I didn't have a home anymore. I had just broken up with my fiance and my brother was dead and, mm-hmm. and I was a mess. And people mm-hmm. said, well, come travel around and eat with us and you can cook for us or we'll cook for you. And one person in particular, a woman I'd gone to um, school with, who I hadn't seen in 25 years, um, said, you should write a book. And I forgot about it. And then after mm-hmm. I went through hell again, I mm-hmm. I picked it up. So it was on Facebook. Okay. Okay. Well, it starts out with some awful events, which you've already s- talked about. And then right away, it seems that you're writing about those times. Did you write it later, and it just seems like you're writing about those times? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. You mean well, it, when, in the immediate? In the, in the beginning, um, yes, you were on Facebook, but did you were you writing the whole story right away, or did you look back and write it? I started, um, I started writing the proposal for the book about two months after I got out of the hospital. Wow. Um, wow. I was in the hospital. Well, yes. I was, I, it, you know, that's what I do. I was a writer and I was a cook and I, you know, I, I had to do something. I was a complete mm-hmm. mess. So, mm-hmm. um, I didn't start writing about the the things at the beginning of the book, though, until later, um, Mm -hmm. like maybe six months later, because it Mm -hmm. it was really difficult for me to write about. Yeah, Um, but it feels very immediate. It feels very immediate in the book when you're writing about that stuff. Well, I guess that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's funny, now I I try to forget it, but back then I couldn't forget it at all, so it probably seems like it was happening, you Mm -hmm. know. What year was, did all that stuff happen? It was a long time ago, and, um, you know, I'm 58 now, and one mm-hmm. of the things that I think is always interesting about the book is that people thought it was chiclet, because, you know, the title, that subhead, you know, the perfect dish to mend the broken heart. Mm-hmm. I was 50 um, when this happened. My I brother and I tell. shared a... I couldn't tell yeah. <laughs> how old you were in the book or now, because, um, yeah, you seem, you sound younger than that. Well, I'm very young at heart. <laughs> I'm very <laughs> immature. I think I think the big thing is I'm very emotionally immature. Okay. And so I think, you know, I'm not sure if we just didn't, we decided, my editor and I decided not to talk about my age a lot, because mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. part of the reason that I was so devastated was that it was at this point in my life where, mm-hmm. you know, I should have everything together. And instead, I lost everything in an instant. Mm-hmm. But I was 50... Um, I was 50 when my brother died, or I was 49, um, Mm -hmm. and I just would turn 50 in just a few weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. We shared a birthday. But my, I got the book contract um, and started writing in 2012, so he died in, at the end of 2010-11, and then my book was supposed to have come out in 2015, but Mm -hmm. it was, I had a nightmare book, um, you know, experience, so it ended up getting extended once and then again and switching editors and it was it wasn't the world it, it was it a bad experience on top of a 
<laughs> bad experience. Oh, no. Okay. So yeah. just to tell the um, listeners, so your brother died. His name was Oliver. And mm-hmm. you then had a very bad breakup. And then right. you were put yourself in the hospital in Chicago. Yeah. And, and then I went to Betty Ford. <laughs> and then you went to Betty Ford in California. And, and this was all in a couple of months. Yeah, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And then yeah. and then you sort of hit the road. Right. I um <laughs> after after Betty Ford, I had been living out in my sister's house in the desert and she was kind of like, "You know what? Why don't you why don't you not come back here?" <laughs> she had a, a desert house and I thought I would be there for a while and I was sort uh-huh. of like I was this hot potato that everybody sort of handed off. I was, mm-hmm. you know, broken and useless and mm-hmm. you know, and when suicide happens in a family, it really especially in a dysfunctional family like mine, it really kind of explodes mm-hmm. whatever, you know, functional capabilities that family has. And mm-hmm. I kind of I was a little bit of um I was a mess, but I also kind of got scapegoated. So I ended up mm-hmm. living with my aunt and uncle in my hometown, Galax, Virginia, for mm-hmm. three months. Whenever I mentioned that it was three months, my aunt says, it was four. It was four months. <laughs> That's Aunt Mariah? <laughs> yeah. And oh, I love her. Experience. Yeah, she's wonderful. I'm I'm getting ready to see her soon. That oh, was a good. great experience for yeah. me. Um, I mean, a really great experience. And it kind of gave me the strength to pick up and really hit the road and go back in time in my life to college friends, people I hadn't seen in a long, long time, and um, a lot of other kinds of people in my life, people that I'd met through Facebook or Mm -hmm. through social media, which Mm -hmm. back then was kind of a weird thing to have friends from social media. And so they're in my book, and Mm -hmm. my favorite chef from Chicago, and, you know, it was, when it started out, I had celebrities lined up and and, you know, famous people who were like, sure, I'll be in your book. And then mm-hmm. I wrote about them, and the editor said, you know what? We like your family and your friends and, you know, the, the smaller things here than we do the splashy things. And so mm-hmm. it ended up being a very different book. Mm, okay. Now, in a when, good way for me. Yeah. Now, when did you realize how important comfort food would be in your recovery? Um, you know, I that was... I don't, you know, if, if you'll notice, the book doesn't really have comfort food recipes per se. Um, mm-hmm. That was the idea, the kind of thread that got me to move and to connect with people and not to, you know, turn into a total, you know, hermit. Mm-hmm. But it ended up not really being about, you know, the idea of what we think of mashed potatoes and, mm-hmm. you know, roast chicken and rich kind of gloppy foods. It ended mm-hmm. up really being what people made for me or the things that I wanted to make for other people. And it was Mm -hmm. important for me to, it was important for me not to try to turn it into the kind of aspirational cooking that a lot of us do now, a lot of home cooks where we, you know, talk about cooking out of the French laundry cookbook, which I did, Mm -hmm. but I wanted it to really reflect, um, I hate this word, but, you know, uh, more of an authentic experience of, mm-hmm. of trying to put my life together and using food as a way of being able to say to people, I want to, I want to come into your life. I want to reconnect with you. It was, mm-hmm. it was a device. And right. 
I want to give you this. I want to give you this and I want to eat with you and I want to feed you and I want you to feed me. Right. And at that point in my life, I really wasn't capable of Of doing that. Yeah, and doing mm-hmm. it in a natural way, the, mm-hmm. the way people grieve and come mm-hmm. together. I, mm-hmm. My family was kind of falling apart. And mm-hmm. so I really had to, it made me stretch myself in a way that I wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you yeah. had very impressive previous jobs. You, I mean, I'm a New Yorker reader. So you invented Tables for Two? Well, that's what it says in my bio. I feel guilty about saying invented it. It had... Um, I had an editor, um, Mm -hmm. Craig Seligman, who uh, was the head of Goings On About Town, and he started it, Mm. and then he left, and I took over. So I kind of turned it into the weekly um, thing, and back when we were doing it, and I was assigning people to write them, they weren't signed. We Mm. just did them, and, you know, Talk of the Town wasn't signed back then. It was in the 90s, so it was a lot of fun, and, and I like to think that I, you know, gave Tables for Two its identity mm-hmm. and turned it into a, you know, a, a full-time thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it started, fun. it wasn't every week? No, it was once a month. And was um, it always at the tail end of the, uh, you know, going out no, section? They've, no, they've made it much bigger. It's mm-hmm. It used to just be, um, if there are four columns of copy on a page, it was one not even a full column, okay. you know, a little emblem, and then about four paragraphs. Um, so it was so, more in Talk of the Town. And writing short is hard. Yeah, Talk of the Town. Right. Okay. Right. Well, I I read it religiously now. I mean, you it's always really want to see who fell into, you know, Tables for Two. <laughs> hmm It was fun. Yeah, yeah. And, and the New Yorker needed food. It did, and and I'm glad that they've expanded it a lot. Uh-huh. Um, it, it there wasn't that much food writing in the '90s. I mean, the, the the food coverage and the way we were doing it. I mean, my my sort of direction to our writers was we're not reviewing food because we're not food critics. Uh-huh. We're writing up places that we like, and we're we're telling a story. Mm-hmm. And it, you just you just wouldn't have presumed to be a food critic, you know, mm-hmm. and now mm-hmm. it's right. like, you know, right. everybody writes about critic. restaurants and food and yeah, right. um, which is fine, you know, I, it's fine. It's just different. Right. And you were also the theater critic? No, it was not the theater critic. The theater critic was John Lahr and the second oh, okay. theater critic was Nancy Franklin. I covered theater for Goings On About Town. So I just went all the time and oh. did blurbs and kept the magazine abreast of what was going on in the theater world and performing arts. I was an editor at okay. the New Yorker. I wasn't okay. a writer. But still a great gig. It was a great gig. I mean, <laughs> going to theater and restaurant all the time um, was a great gig. Really? What more <laughs> could you of, want? <laughs> it was wonderful. And I love the people are mm-hmm. wonderful. And mm-hmm. it was a great job. And I love the people that I worked mm-hmm. with. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was heaven. And then you I don't went, know anybody who's ever left and hated it. Yeah. Now, then you went to the Chicago Tribune and became a restaurant critic. I had a, they brought me there um, to write about food. Mm-hmm. They had their, their food critic, Phil Vitale, who's wonderful, mm-hmm. and they wanted somebody to do kind of the the things that Phil wasn't doing, the high-end places, they wanted someone to do the middle. And I okay. only did that for about, 
had a column called, um, I think, Table Hopping. Mm. And I only did that for a year, but my mm-hmm. secret plan was that I, I, I went there to kind of throw myself into the fire of, you know, being a full-time reporter. So I talked them into switching me over to features. And so I was a features reporter for several years. And then when things started going south at the Tribune and um, they had that sort of bad period of bankruptcy, I thought, hmm, I think I better go back to food. And so I went to the good eating section where I wrote about cooking and Mm. developed recipes and worked with the test kitchen. So I did a lot at the Mm -hmm. Tribune. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was fun. So then trauma strikes over and over in your life. And let's take a break, a a short break, and we'll be back to talk about the rest. Okay. Okay. This is Diane Stemple talking to Emily Nunn on Cutting the Curd. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conté is unique. Learn more about Conté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen U-S-A dot com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hello. Diane Stemple, back on cutting, cutting the Curd, talking to Emily Nunn. So, Emily, first you leave Chicago and you think your brother Michael and sister Elaine are going to step up and help you, right? And they do, yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. And they make you go to Betty Ford? <laughs> My sister told me that... Um, I I can't remember exactly how she put it, but she said, um, and I I don't know why the fact that I'd just been in a very rigorous program for 10 days didn't matter, but if I was going to stay in the desert house, I I would have to go to Betty Ford. And I was like, okay, sure, fine. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was a mess. Uh And Betty Ford is a great place. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it. I'm like an ad for it. Mm -hmm. It works. Um, And did you sleep there or did you do the day program? 
I did the day program. I so that. I was living in my sister's um, fancy um, desert house mm-hmm. and driving about 20 minutes into, um, I can't remember the name of the town it's in. Okay. Oh, Rancho Mirage, which cracks me up. <laughs> okay. So then after that, you decide to try to reach out to others and learn to find, quote, the sweetness in life. That's from the yeah. book. <laughs> yep. And and um and you embark on this major trip all over the south mostly mm-hmm. visiting relatives mostly. and college friends and uh you tell such nice sweet stories about all those stops. Yeah, it saved my life. Yeah. I mean There's I- I wanted something about old friends, you know. I wanted pictures of the comforting bedrooms you visited. (laughs) And you know, I had for the the bedrooms were amazing. I mean, I for a while, even like I took pictures of every bed I slept in, and for a while, I was posting them on Facebook. And it was the (laughs) title of the section was "Beds I've Slept In Since 2011." And um, I took pictures of my bed. I took a cross-country train trip and, mm-hmm. of course, slept in some pictures of the train bed and pictures of, you know, inns that I stayed in, people's homes. They're, you know, one futon. Just, mm-hmm. And it was a lot of beds, and yes. they're not all in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you do move around a lot. I mean, I guess that's a consequence of not really having a home for those right. that time. How long was it right. before? Before well, I did. you got to Charleston, because um, you had your own between, apartment the there. Time I left Chicago, yeah, I did, and Charleston was great. It was a it was a good stopping off point, but it never really felt like home. As much as I love it, I didn't. Mm-hmm. But it was a year um, between the time I left Chicago and the time I moved to Charleston. It was a year. Mm-hmm. I got my book contract, which mm-hmm. you know that was you know they give you a quarter of your book contract money and I moved to Charleston and mm-hmm. yeah, a full year where I honestly had no idea, you know, it was hard to sleep. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> but I, I did, I did start, you know, that's when the trip started and that's when, you know, I knew that I had to focus and I had to have a project that was going to lead me away from just, I mean, sorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you don't talk much about missing drinking in the book. Was that on purpose, or did you not miss Um, it much? I honestly didn't miss it much, and I have not been... I'm very open about, you know, being in recovery Mm -hmm. and the periods of my life when I have, you know, gone back to drinking, and and being in my relationship was one of those periods. I've been sober for five years before I you know, got into my messy relationship, Ah, but, um, I didn't miss it. Um, and I, I can't, I can't say, here's the thing about being in recovery. You don't miss it until you miss it. And then boom, I know plenty of people who have been sober for 25 years. I'm not one of those people. I've relapsed. Mm -hmm. It takes you by surprise, but I'm not one of those people who, can't walk past a bar or thinks about it ever. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's weird. I don't ever think about it. Mm-hmm. And everybody's different, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so, some people so miss not, it the way they miss a relationship. Right. So you didn't decide to leave it out, in other words. You just weren't no, thinking about no. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think people, you, you're the second person who's asked me that in an interview. And um, it wasn't a conscious thing. In fact, I think my editor said, you know, you should mention at some point how you're doing. And there is a passage in there where I talk about my imperfection as a as a person in recovery and the reactions that you get when you tell people you've stopped drinking are often harsher than the reactions that you get when, you know, you, you <laughs> put a lampshade drinking. on your head at a party. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, because... I don't know why American culture is so weighted um, toward having a problem and just continuing and mm-hmm. stopping it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's changed a lot, though, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in 20 now, years. Now, the college friends, uh, Portia, Pat, and Weiler, were those their names? Mm-hmm. Dot, Can- Portia, Dot, and Weiler. Oh, right, Dot. Can you tell us what did they provide you together and apart? Hmm. Well, aside from this feeling that, you know, I had just talked to them the day before, Mm -hmm. all three of them had aspects of their lives that could have stopped them the way mine did. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all terrific people and... They've, but they've also faced the. I can't remember the name of that scale, but the death of a husband, a divorce, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. death of a child, right. um, loss of a sibling, breakup. There's a scale, and all of them had had. Most of the people that I are included in the book had had mm-hmm. at least one of those things, and not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, Portia has been sober for, I think. 14 years, mm-hmm. and I, in the book, I talk about how her husband finally said, look, you either do this or, you know, mm-hmm. we can't keep going on. And my friend Weiler um, came out of the closet when she was well into her 30s, I think, mm-hmm. which is amazing in the mm-hmm. South that, mm-hmm. you know, you could, that's a long time. And yeah. Dot had been divorced, and um, so... Oh, and Dot also had a brother who was a suicide, um, mm-hmm. but that was when we were much, much younger. And so mm-hmm. that was definitely something that that was important in our relationship, right. being able to talk right. about what that does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different kind of grief. So, yeah. um, you know, Weiler, talking to her about, you know, my brother, you know, coming out and how hard that is in the South and how hard it was when you're our age, our era, it's really different. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in our late fifties, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. coming out when you were in your twenties was, was still really, really hard. I think back, and Wilder confirmed that for me. You mm-hmm. know, she said it was the hardest thing she'd ever done in her life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you you write uh, at one point, "No one lives unscathed for long." That's another quote, which right. I think is really true. You, you know, the longer the more you get to know people, you find out all their, all their bad secrets. Absolutely, and and it and it takes away those you know the the power of those secrets. I mean, the mm-hmm. things that people mm-hmm. are secretive about are 
sometimes inscrutable to me, but everything is relative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Aunt Mariah, I feel like I had aunts like that in West Virginia, where my father was from. Um, I love her. Uh, yeah, she's the best. And I loved how, this is why I love your book. You talk about at the end of your visit with her how her mother's invitation, Aunt Mariah's mm-hmm. mother's invitation to a wedding fell out of an old cookbook and you just gave it to her the night before you left. Yeah, it was it was an invitation. Her mother died when she was um, in her 20s. Oh, it was wow. it was uh, her mother's cookbook, which I think had been her grandmother's cookbook. And it was her mother's wedding invitation. Yeah, I opened it up and her mother's wedding invitation fell out of the book. And I went <laughs> into the kitchen and I said, oh, my God. And I remember she, she said, Emily, I love you. <laughs> Except I she said know. it in that accent, that right, Tidewater, right. Virginia accent. <laughs> and she hadn't. She had forgotten that it was there. Right. And right. I was pulling out all of her books and going right. through all of her cookbooks and right. recipe boxes. So that just seemed such a good, uh, you know, encapsulation of your connection with the relatives and how you were giving yeah. back to them while they were giving to you. And that was something that I had to remind myself a lot because when you know. I, t- I had to take a lot from people, which wasn't something that I was used to doing. I was incredibly mm-hmm. independent and stalwart and, you know, even relationships a little bit of a loner. Like, I can do it. Don't help me. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, really one of the main things that I, I learned while writing this book. I was at dinner with friends the other night, and a friend wanted to pay, and I just said, okay. She mm-hmm. wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. It, it makes people happy to to buy you dinner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't go through that thing that women do where you say, oh, no, no, come on, let me, That's or I'll get the tip. I just said, right. great. <laughs> now, another thing that was sweet is that your girlfriends all drove you out of town, like yeah. uh, like led you with their cars, I presume, yeah. so yeah. that you knew the way, which I presume yeah. it makes me feel you like didn't crying. really need, but it seems Mm-mm. so sweet to me that they... It's very Southern. Yeah, that they, <laughs> that they felt they had to do that to make sure you yeah. were on your way. Uh, yeah, and it, it breaks my heart remembering it, you know, with the mm-hmm. arm out the car window, waving, yeah, pointing yeah, down that yeah, road. Yeah. Now, I suppose we should talk a little bit about cheese because it is a cheese show. So, yes. pimento cheese. I'm so glad you brought it up. <laughs> I've had I'm it. I'm so glad you brought it up. I've had it. I like it. I love it. But, you know, is it... You is, don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> well, it's a total southern thing. And my my oldest sister um, was married to a man from New York. She uh-huh. her first marriage, and mm-hmm. she used to get upset because her mother in law would say, "Allison, make that wonderful cheese dip you make," and she would say, "It's not a dip; it's a spread." <laughs> As if it was the worst thing in the world to call pimento cheese a dip, but it's uh, not a dip. It's no, a spread. And no, I think I know that. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, you eat it on crackers or white mm-hmm. toast mm-hmm. or even rye toast if you want to. But mm-hmm. it's, I guess we kind of um, 
we've sort of turned it into a fetish in the South. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but that is the main cheese in the book. It's the main cheese in the book, although, you know, I I'm, I have the book in my hand. I do have a, um, a spoon bread that has um, parm in it. Okay, good. And... Yeah. And I have adapted my spoon bread. I recently adapted that for Food 52 with mm-hmm. um, cheddar and chives, which was really good. Oh, good. But, yeah, there's not good. a lot of cheese in here. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. I told you, I think that um, Meadow Creek Dairy is right near Galax, my right. hometown, and mm-hmm. I've been there. Oh, I love that. They do, I love their cheese. It's, oh, my God, it's really good. But pimento cheese, here's the thing about pimento cheese. Okay, what is you, it? A little bit of mayonnaise, not a lot of mayonnaise. You don't want it to be wet. Mm-hmm. And um, we talking about making it? Yeah, a little okay. bit of mayonnaise and <laughs> lots of pepper. And um, you use some of the juice from the jar of pimentos. You always mm-hmm. use a jar of pimentos. You don't want, you know, your own roasted pimentos. Okay. And lots and lots and lots of black pepper. And that's it. And then you let it sit at room temperature so that it kind of, you know, I don't know. Wait, ferments what's the cheese? Almost. What's the cheese? It's cheddar, really oh, sharp okay. cheddar, and okay. you can use okay. and you can use satisfactory cheese. You don't want to use right. a really good cheese okay. for pimento cheese. Okay. You want to use you don't like, want to use rat cheddar. cheese though. No, you want it to be really sharp. Okay. I mean, you okay. can use. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the cougar cheese from. I can't remember which. Yes. Um, university. Have you ever had it? It's really good. I have because I had a niece who went there. Um, what is the name of the college? I can't remember. I think it's, it's not Washington. It's a, it's a Western University. Is it Washington State University? Oh, oh, I'm thinking of something else. There's another um, college in the South that has cheese. You might be oh, right. This is a, this is a, right. a, 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 a dairy school yeah and they yeah. it's in a can a big round can yes, and it's yes. crumbly and it has the crystals and it's delicious okay i'm gonna have to, um, that would make i'm gonna have to I'll do research on that so um, really what good. is your favorite cheese and what's your favorite cheese recipe oh my favorite cheese um this is going to sound really wimpy and you're not going to be impressed with me at all but okay um, okay i'm ready i'm ready I'm, I love, and it's not a wimpy cheese, it's a great cheese, but it's a gateway cheese. And mm-hmm. I, probably everybody says this, but the Cypress Grove um, uh, fog with the layer Humboldt of ash. Fog. Humboldt Fog. Yeah, Humboldt oh, Fog is That's is very respectable. A, that's very respectable. It's respectable. It's not exciting because it's been around for a long time, but it really is the cheese that mm-hmm. when I was working at the Chicago Tribune that made me start keeping a cheese notebook. I got <laughs> super into cheese for a while. Uh-huh. Now, have you um, had it really with truffles? Grayson. Have you had it with truffles? Truffle Tremor is the Humboldt Fog with truffles in it. I prefer the original. Okay. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, not a, I'm not a big truffle person. Okay. Um, okay. I love it, but I got kind of, you know, having been in New York in the 90s, mm-hmm. I kind of got overexposed to it, and people mm-hmm. were using truffle mm-hmm. oil, which is disgusting. Right, and, right, right. So, I mean, at the same time, having real truffles and, you know, cream of asparagus soup is mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty great. But I, 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 I'm I, kind of anti-truffle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also really love Grayson. Uh, Grayson is totally respectable. Have they ever won Best in Show? They may have won second. 
Best in Show is from the American Cheese Society, and it's oh, which I've the been to. pinnacle of the cheese world. Um, yeah, it was in Chicago when I was there. Ah, I was there. I was there. To each other. Um, <laughs> but Grace and Cheese, for a while, but I think they may have stopped making. I did a little, uh, I did a visit there um, mm-hmm. when they were probably a lot smaller, when, you know, there were cats walking around in the yard. And mm-hmm. I think they were doing another washed rind and may have stopped. Is, is Could that be right? I know they make a Mountaineer. And, Mountaineer. And Grayson. Grayson. I don't quite have at the tip of my tongue the a third Appalachian maybe oh yes yes is that I think that's the one they stopped doing yeah I think so I think that might be the one they stopped doing we're probably both wrong about that but I think they did they may have done three or four cheeses and now I think they just do two Mm -hmm. I'll get back to you about that well anyway it's been a pleasure talking to you now wait oh you didn't tell me the cheat your favorite cheese recipe Oh, you know what? Right now, I would have to say that my own spoon bread with cheddar and chives, which sounds like a side dish, but I have made that for people at dinner, and we end up eating the whole spoon bread with the green salad. <laughs> so I think that is my, you know, it's sort of like a southern souffle. Do you, mm-hmm. Have you ever had spoon bread? Well, this is, I, don't I, I think know. of it as southern, and I think of it as a souffle, and... I'll send you the recipe. Okay. It's kind okay. of glorious. Okay. I I was very tempted by many of your recipes because I like that they're spread out, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's not an inundation mm-hmm. of recipes. And I felt like they were going to be easy enough for me. They are easy. <laughs> they are easy. I mean, there are a couple that, that are time-consuming, but I wanted... I just wanted to, I didn't really want it to be a cookbook as mm-hmm. much as I did a book about food and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, how it, I don't know, it's such a bomb. Yeah. I just love cooking so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I can't wait to make some of the recipes. Anyway, so it's been very nice to talk to you. Uh, Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. And please, everybody, read the Comfort Food Diaries, the tagline is my quest for the perfect dish to mend a broken heart which i didn't find by the way (laughs) okay (laughs) okay so uh excellent and i'll talk to you soon bye thank you bye thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to learn more about our 10 year anniversary celebration happening all year long subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us on facebook at facebook.com slash heritage radio network Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.